Welcome to Convention Pulpit, Wesleyan Voices Past and Present, brought to you through the Ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention. Visit our website for an entire library of great sermons and more information on this ministry, www.ihconvention.com. In the home that I grew up in, there were many things that were just a given. One of those things was that if there was a revival or camp meeting on within 50 miles of our house, we went every night that we could. Well, it was one of those years that I was exposed to the ministry of this gentleman, one of the greatest missionary speakers to ever grace our movement. And his name is LWRB. I know you're going to enjoy this sermon that he preached at the God's Bible School and College Camp Meeting in Cincinnati, Ohio, back in 1979. It's titled, Be Ye Fishers of Men. I don't want to lose the fire. I don't want to lose the glory. I'm happy for the privilege of being back on the hilltop. The last time I was here as one of the workers was when I had more hair and it was blacker. 15 years ago, 1964. How many was in the camp in 64? See, well, there's a few. My congregation changed in a few years. Before that, I was here for the winter revival meeting in 64. And it was one of the best meetings I have seen in the last 30 years. It was one of those times when God saw fit to visit his Zion. Why, I'd like to see a few more like that. I was five services in that winter meeting when there were no preaching. Nobody just whipped something up, you know. Worked, no, one, no one worked it up. But God poured it down from heaven. Don't you like those kind of services? If you don't, something's wrong with you. Wave after wave of the Shekinah glory and great waves of old-fashioned hell-scare conviction came and the altars filled. Service after service without any preaching. Even closed out that way. So you're bragging on yourself? No, I'm bragging on the Lord. In fact, I feel that I had the privilege of entering into other men's labors. You brethren have had that experience, haven't you? I felt like I was privileged to enter in where someone else had done a lot of sowing. And that just happened to be one of the reaping times. It was God's time. Well, I do feel that God has been helping in a very special way and we've been traveling in the right direction. Now, I know some people in a congregation like this, you're just anxious to somehow reach a skyscraper of your own. Well, I hope you do. But I have seen some camp meetings or some revival meetings. If God would give them a skyscraper, spiritually speaking, when they wanted it, it would topple over for the lack of a foundation. <laughs> Yes, that's right. Have you ever seen one like that? They just wanted to, well, may God help us to somehow give attention to some foundation. And then when God gives you a skyscraper, it won't topple over for the lack of a foundation. 
Amen. I wonder how many of you folks here today know what my initials stand for. L.W., will you lift your hand? Well, my, just, I reckon I'll have to tell them, Brother uh, Hermie. They say my, the initials L.W. means long-winded. That's a bad thing for afternoon service, isn't it, huh? <laughs> well, now, I deny the charge. I tell them they're wrong. It means lovingly winsome. <laughs> but the only trouble about that, it's easier for me to prove the other, that I'm long-winded, than it is for me to prove that I'm lovingly winsome. Well, I know this much. All I want to do, whether it's brief or long, I want to be a help and a blessing. Amen. I'm not, when I talk about services without any preaching, I'm not inviting Ishmael to take over. I don't mind Isaac having it. You know, Isaac represents the spirit, and Ishmael represents the flesh. And I have been in some church revivals and camp meetings when there was a tug of war. Isaac could get up, you know, and he was full of the spirit and my right. He blessed the people, and then Ishmael would get up, and things would die. And I sat there praying, oh, Lord, please give Brother Isaac the last round of this bout. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, do you? I don't want the flesh to take over, but I'll tell you here and now, I invite the blessed Holy Ghost to take over any time he wants it. And I want to go on record, brethren, he'll not have to shove me out of the way. Praise God, just give me a little nudge. Bless God, I'll get out of the way. I've learned, you know, of course I haven't learned very much because I was born in Georgia and reared in Alabama. But one or two lessons I have learned fairly well, and that is it's the God's presence that really makes the difference. I appreciated the great message last night and the message this morning, and I'm sure I'm going to appreciate Brother Noel's ministry. I've never had the privilege of hearing him preach, but I know he's God's man, gifted servant. But I've never heard a preacher yet that can come up to that quality of service when the Holy Ghost just comes in. <laughs> hey, but I'll tell you, he can do a better job in five minutes than you can in five years, in five lifetimes. So let's make room and way for the Holy Ghost. If you have your Bibles with you this afternoon, you may turn with me in the New Testament Scriptures. I am reading from the Gospel according to Matthew from chapter 4, beginning with verse 18. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brethren, Simon called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he saith unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they straightway left their nets and followed him. And going on from thence, he saw other two brethren, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in a ship with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And they immediately left the ship and their father and followed him. There is a statement of truth set forth here in verse 21 that lends itself to a train of thought that I would like to follow, that I feel the Lord would have me to follow for a few minutes this afternoon. And that statement of truth is a reference to the fact that these men, these fishermen, were busy mending their nets, putting their nets in good repair. 
Now, beloved, when Christ Jesus told these fishermen that if they would just follow him, he would make them fishes of men, I'm convinced he gave to us a very, very interesting analogy. And I'm afraid there's something of tremendous importance that a great many professed Christians have completely overlooked. And that is the only qualification given here for a person to become a soul winner, because keep in mind, that is what is meant by fishes of men, is that they just follow the Savior. That's all. He doesn't say, if you follow me, you'll become a Sunday school teacher or a song evangelist or a musician or a church executive or evangelist or pastor, and then you will be a soul winner. None of those offices are mentioned. He just plainly says, if you'll follow me, I'll make you a fisher of men. Now, friends, in the light of that truth, I wonder where it puts some of us here today. Are we winning souls? Or to say the least of it, if we are not putting forth an honest effort to win souls, do we have a scriptural right to claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ? Now, I'm not trying to be hard on anybody, and I'm preaching this message to Barbie as well as I'm trying to preach it to you. But I feel that we have no scriptural right to claim to be a follower of Jesus unless we're putting forth an honest effort to win souls to Jesus Christ. I believe that with all of my heart. Now, fishing was not a sport or a pastime with the men that we read about in this lesson. Far from it. My friends, did you know that fishing was serious business with these men? Very serious business. It was all the way these men had of making a living, of putting bread on their tables and shelters over their heads and clothes on their backs. These men had to actually catch fish to live. If you please, they had to do more than some fishermen that fish for sport or pastime, go out and get a few close strikes and go home and brag about that big one that was so big it broke the line and got away. You've heard them talk, you know. Oh, boy, you should have seen it. <laughs> oh, it broke the water and I got, my, did you land it? Oh, no, it got away. Well, they had to do more than that. They couldn't supply the food for themselves and their families if that's all they'd done. They had to catch fish to live. Now, friends, I am convinced that this simple analogy, very meaningful analogy, carries through on that point as well as on some others. This preacher was convinced that unless we feast on some of that heavenly meat of soul winning, it won't be long until we'll cease to be spiritual ourselves. Oh, I'm not saying that you will not continue to be a member of a holiness church and maybe be in good standing with most of them and continue to carry on the rituals of religion. But I'm talking about having the heavenly dynamics in your soul, your soul throbbing with real, genuine spiritual life. You can't long have it unless you have some of that heavenly meat of soul winning. You remember that conversation that Jesus had with the woman at the well? Remember that? The disciples had been sent into the city to buy earthly meat for the physical body, you recall. And when they returned, they found Jesus talking to this woman. 
And they offered the master some of this meat they had purchased in the city. You recall now what Jesus said to them? He said, I have meat to eat that you know nothing about. <laughs> had any man given him any meat? Oh, no. What did it mean? He had his feet under the table of the heavenly father, and he had been feasting on that heavenly meat of winning a soul to himself. I believe you'll have to have some, or you just won't live a spiritual life. Are you still here? I see you sitting out there. Now, I know this kind of truth is not that which is going to make you feel like your head bumping the third rafters of, the, of heaven, but or the rafters of the third heaven. But I'll tell you one thing. These are some timbers we need to build on. You know, I remember a number of years ago when I first heard about uh, this Bible school and college. In fact, I once, I think I even wrote for uh, application papers on and then later went on to our own school in the South and Central. But I remember the his, some of the history of this college when this college was known for its students going everywhere in personal witnessing. You know, we're getting away from that everywhere today, it seems to me. Getting away from soul winning. I believe it's necessary spiritual meat and... Say, wouldn't you be honest, when's the last time you had just a little nibble of that kind of meat? Say nothing about a chunk of it in your soul. Thrilled over winning a soul to Jesus Christ. I'll never forget one of my trips out to Troy, Missouri for a camp meeting. Supposed to be out there this year in this camp and that camp. I was on my slate uh, through some mistake and I canceled them and came here since I'd been there several times, but I was there for one of the camp meetings and there was a man uh, that came to the altar one of the day services of that camp meeting. And I could tell that a brother that came with him influenced him to come. The Lord only knows how many prayers he had prayed for him and how many times he had done something to influence him toward God. I'm sure he had. Now, when that man that bowed at that altar in that day service in that camp meeting finally confessed through and faith through, you know who made the biggest racket? A joyful noise, I ought to call it. Not the man who just prayed through, but the man who brought him to Christ. You talk about having a time. That man took sips out of the little dipper and chinned the handle of the a big dipper and ran up and down the Milky Way and shouting and appraising God and having him a real spiritual picnic all of his own. Amen. And finally, in the midst of that great rejoicing, he turned and faced that congregation and said, Folks, I'm not going to date my Christian experience any farther back than this very service. Well, what did it mean? Did it mean he was just then getting saved? No, he had been a good saint of God for years. It meant that the thrill of winning that soul to Jesus Christ had blessed him so and had so strengthened him and had so fed him, he felt like he was saved and sanctified all over again. I'll tell you one thing, if we had more of that, people wouldn't be so busy picking themselves to pieces and holding us churches. Yes, I believe we're going to have to be engaged in this if we're going to have a spiritual life ourselves. Now, to catch fish, these men would use a very large net. They'd cast it out, haul it in, empty the fish in the boat, cast it out, haul it in, and they'd do it over and over until they'd caught a sufficient amount of fish for the day. But in the lesson that I read to you, these men are not seen casting the net. But listen, friends. They were doing something very, very necessary to their trade as fishermen. 
The word says they were mending their nets. They were putting them in good condition, good repair. I can see those fishermen in my imagination as they toil and labor and they cast the net and they haul in and I can hear one of them say, fellas, we're just simply failing today. We're not getting the job done. We're not novices. We're skilled in this trade. And we know there's an abundance of fish here, but we're not getting the job done. Then I can see one of them lift up those big old... Now, look at here, fellas. Look at these big, ugly, gaping holes in the net. Here's a reason we're not getting the job done. The fish are here, but they're getting through. I'm afraid that's the very thing that's true in the church world of our day. Too many times we're toiling and working and toiling and we're not getting the job done because our nets need a repairing. The holes need to be closed up. I feel like those men were showing some good common sense. I would to God that we holding this people from shore to shore around the world would reach this place where we recognize that the use of good common sense is not a violation to Bible salvation. We act like it sometimes. Why, they knew that it was no sense for them to carry on with those nets in that kind of condition. And they knew regardless of how skilled they were in the use of the nets and regardless of how abundant the fish were, if they continue with those nets in that kind of condition, their toil would be in vain. Now, that's exactly what a lot of people are doing today. They're praying, they're carrying on the ritual of religion, and a lot of times people preach from the pulpits and nothing much taking place because the nets are full of hope. I've been in some meetings where singers, you know, would uh, uh, have a little recorder and uh, he would sing one part and then he'd press a button and the recorder would sing uh, uh, another part on there, you know, and, and it'd be the same voice. I thought sometimes I've been in some meetings, I ought to have some of my own amens on recording and when I get to a place where people kind of close up, you know, reach over and touch the switch and have some of your own amens. Amen, preacher. I've been in some meetings. If you began to just dig down real deep about the devotional life and this business of witnessing, this business of being a soul winner, people get awfully quiet. Wonder why? Or should I wonder why? About like the man over in the state of Indiana where I was in a meeting in the Marin area a few years ago. There was a man there that wore a hearing aid, and I'm not making fun of anyone that wears a hearing aid. I may have to have one someday, and I'll be glad to get one of those gadgets if my hearing begins to fail. But this man had a wife that fussed at him. And the pastor said, Preacher, you know, when his wife gets to fussing at him, he doesn't say a word. He just reaches in and turns off the hearing aid. Well, that's nothing new to me. I've been in a lot of meetings when the preacher myself or some other preacher began to put the old plow down, you know, the old gospel plow began to go down real deep. They don't say anything, but the look on their face, they're saying, I'm just tuning you out, bud. Especially when you're preaching along this line about our slothfulness and our laziness and our lack of a compassion and lack of witnessing, lack of soul winning. Why, some of you folks out there, you people out there in this congregation this afternoon, you're lean in soul because it's been so long since you had a feast on the heavenly meat of winning a soul. Oh, God help us for Jesus' sake to see the necessity of this. And I feel like it'll make this camp meeting worth more to us the rest of the camp if we'll really get awakened and let God help us to mend the nets. 
get them in real good repair. Now, as fishers of men, there are several nets that we use. Follow me carefully. The main net that we use is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of the Son of God. And that's the only net that never needs mending. Did you think I was going to say the gospel net needs mending? Oh, no. The modernists uh, and unbelievers think so. Uh, they are busy tearing the gospel apart and then putting it back together and leaving the essentials out. Oh, no, the gospel of Christ is the net that never needs mending. It just needs preachers to preach it uncompromisingly and everybody to live it consistently. Now, with that in mind, since I made the statement that the gospel of Christ is a net that never needs mending, in the first place this afternoon, I want us to give attention to the fact of amending the net of a consistent walk before our fellow man. Now, don't turn down your hearing aid. Turn it up now. This is very basic. This is very, very important. We need to mend the net of a consistent walk before our fellow man. My friends, I am convinced if we are to have a saving influence, and there's not a one here. If you've got one bit of grace, you want a saving influence at least over your loved ones. If you don't, God pity and have mercy on your soul. If we are to have a saving influence, this is the first basic fundamental as Christians. We must have a consistent walk before our fellow man. Uh, will not get the job done of winning souls to Jesus Christ. In fact, I believe that there are more people who are won to Jesus Christ through the sermon that is preached by that consistent life than there are by the sermons preached from the pulpits of the land. In fact, it matters that how much preaching you, a person sits under he, that gospel that's being preached would never get that person in if that person hadn't seen somebody out there that they knew had the blessing and lived the life. And that's where a lot of pastors are today. A lot of evangelists are today. We labor and toil and preach and pray. And so many times people that are hearing the gospel say, yes, that may be so, but I'll tell you what about so-and-so. They profess high. They don't have anything. More people won by that than there are the messages from the pulpit. The great English preacher, Spurgeon, had this to say along this line. He said, a man's life is always more forceful than his speech. When men take stock of him, they reckon his deeds as pounds and his words as pence. He says, if his life and doctrine disagree, they accept his practice but reject his preaching. Which is just another way of saying, if we are not very careful, what we are may speak so loud, the world can't hear what we have to say. For they are not listening to our talk, they are watching as we walk. They are judging by our actions every day. God help us. I want to say to you this afternoon, if you happen to be professing high and living low, some precious souls are slipping through the holes in that net, and some of them could be your own precious kin that you want to see saved. I'm afraid a great host of young people are land in hell because of the inconsistencies they saw day by day right in the home. 
where mothers and dads profess high but dare to live low. Do you hear me? Are you listening? A great host of young people land in hell because the people living before them profess high and live low. Making calls in a home in my last pastor a few years ago. Oh, I think the little fellow's about maybe, oh, eight or nine years of age. One of these mischievous fellows. And you just never know what one of those mischievous kids is going to say when the preacher comes around. Usually what you wish you hadn't said. That little fellow with a mischievous beam in his eye, he threw his little head back and he said, Preacher, Mama said a bad word. Mama came to life. I don't tell you, if Mama's half asleep, she woke up then. You know what she began to do? She began, to, without too being too noticeable, began to kind of get over there closer to that little fella, you know. And about that time, he threw his little mischievous head back with that mischievous beam in his eye and said, Preacher, Mama said, mm. I'll tell you, over his mouth, her hand went like a vice. But he was wiry. He wasn't going to be outdone easily. So he squirmed and wiggled and fought until he pulled his uh, mouth away from her hand for a second and shouted, Preach your mouth, sir. And over his mouth, her hand went again like a vice. And I never did learn what Mama said. I think it perhaps would have been interesting to know what Mama did say. Oh, now it could have been, to be fair, it could have been it wasn't as bad as he thought it was, but it was so bad she saw to it that he didn't tell the preacher. I left that home feeling in my heart. It would have been better to let that little fella go ahead and tell the preacher what he, she had said. Uh, she said, regardless how embarrassing it might have been, rather than teach that kid to cover up. Now, come on, don't look at me that way. Talking about mending the net of a consistent walk. Not live one thing, profess something else. Oh, God help us for Jesus' sake. You know, the trouble today, we've got too big a gap in the religious world of our day. I'm not pessimist. I don't mean everybody, but altogether too many in our own fellowships that have too big a gap between profession and possession. Big gap. How many of you people know anything about what we call a sophisticated camera? I'm not talking about one of these cameras. You can buy a five, six dollar box camera, you know, and the lens is set, and all you got to do is just simply point it and trip the shutter. No, I'm not talking about, I'm talking about these kind you've got to adjust the lens. When you look through a camera like that, you have to adjust the lens to get a sharp picture. If it's not in focus, you know what you see? You see two images. You see the real image and the ghost image. Now, if you take the picture while there's that big gap in those two images, you get a mighty fuzzy picture. If you want to get a sharp picture, you have to adjust the lens until the image and the ghost image comes together in sharp focus. Then you get a good sharp picture. And the reason the world out there today is getting a fuzzy idea and a nebulous fuzzy picture of vital Christianity, there's too big a gap between profession and possession. We need to make adjustments to Almighty God and bring the two together. Then they'll get a sharp, true picture of what vital Christianity is. One day there's a knock at my door when I was at home there, Spartanburg, South Carolina. I went to the door and there was a fine young man, an Indian, from, a man from India, a student in Wofford College. The college just a 
not far from my home there in Spartanburg. And uh, he was working his way by having his people to ship him little hand-carved elephants from India. He would go from door to door and sell these and make money to pay his school expenses. Well, I'd been to India several times in missionary evangelism and preaching among the lepers and pastor's conference one time. And I'm interested in the people of India. In fact, is I do not know of any country in the whole wide world my heart goes out to more than poor India, where 300 million people are living on the very verge of starvation every day, 300 million existing on the equivalent of a dollar 25 cents a week. God have mercy on us if we waste anything. The garbage cans of America is going to condemn a lot of Americans. Wasting, wasting when so many are starving to death over there. I was interested in that young man because I'm interested in India. And I got in a conversation with him, learned a few things about him, and I said to my wife, I want us to invite that young man out to dinner some evening. I want to create some kind of a fellowship and friendship so I can lead him, try to lead him into a deeper experience. Claim to be saved, I have no reason to believe he's not, but knows nothing about holiness. Most of the time, it's not going to last long in a real vital experience unless they're going all the way, you know. And so we did that. And you know, I learned, I asked him, I said, I want to know what brought you out of Hinduism. Because you know, in, in some places in India today, for a person to take Christian baptism is almost like signing their personal death warrant, leaving Hinduism and taking Christian baptism. I said, how did it come about? He said, well, there was a Methodist physician at the mission. The Methodist mission, a doctor. And he said, now, it wasn't, not, it wasn't so much what the doctor said, but I watched. And it was the way that doctor lived that got a hold of me. I'll tell you, that speaks volumes, folks. That's the reason he broke with Hinduism. That's the reason he was willing to face all the pressure to break with that heathen religion. He saw a man that possessed and had the goods and no gap between profession and possession. Oh, God help us for Jesus' sake. What are you talking about, preacher? I'm still talking about mending the net of a real consistent walk before our fellow men. So that God can bless. Listen, folks, God can't bless us unless we do. And certainly we can have no saving influence over them unless we walk consistently. They won't have confidence in us. They certainly won't. You say, preacher, now, I really, preacher, I, I don't want any big holes in this net. What can I do about it? Well, thank God I'm glad to tell you there's something you can do. <laughs> Hallelujah. There is something you can do. The first step toward mending the net of a consistent walk, listen to me now, is to be honest enough to recognize holes are there. You might as well settle it, ma'am or sir. God can't do anything for any of us unless we'll be honest as he deals with us. You give me a congregation like this for a 10-day camp meeting that will dare be honest, I mean thoroughly honest with themselves as God deals with them, I will tell you something heavenly will break loose around this place. Be honest. Recognize the holes are there. Acknowledge your net is in that kind of condition. Don't look at the other person's, look at your own. It's pitiful how some people can see everyone's need but their own. Isn't that pitiful? <laughs> oh, how many people are like that? Kind of reminds me of the lady that went to see the psychiatrist that I heard about. 
She walked into the psychiatrist's office. She had a fried egg on the top of her head and a strip of bacon hanging over each ear. She walked in and said, Doctor, I want to talk to you about my poor sick brother. She didn't need the help. It was the brother, you know. Well, I wonder what kind of condition he was in if she was there to talk to the doctor about him. Well, a lot of people like that, you know, they can see everybody's need and everybody's like. Be honest, my friends, and acknowledge, Father, there are some holes in the net. And it's no great big ugly gaping holes, Father, I recognize there's some broken strands there and big holes will be there if I don't get them mended. And I'll tell you something else will help a lot in mending this net, and that is to embrace the philosophy the Apostle Paul lived by. Well, what kind of philosophy was that, Brother Barbie? Well, he said, if eating meat causes my brother to offend, if it's going to be a stumbling block to my brother, I'll eat no more meat as long as the world stands. Now, listen, folks, we've gone a long ways from that kind of philosophy in the holiness movement. I know because I've traveled the, from coast to coast in different parts of the world among the holiness people and the conservative people, but we've gone a long ways from that kind of philosophy attitude that if what I'm doing is going to offend my brother for God's sake and soul's sake, I'll not do it anymore. I'll tell you where we are. There's an arrogant, independent spirit that's in the holiness movement today. They are taking the stand. I'll go where I want to go. I'll say what I want to say. I'll do what I want to do. I'll dress the way I want to dress. And I'll look at what I want to look at. It's nobody's business but mine. But let me tell you, it is somebody's business besides yours. It's God's business. And it's the business of lost souls out there. If we'd swing back to putting God first and souls first, I'll tell you, we'd have revival of the shakes and the foundations of evil around where we live. Oh, may God help us for Jesus' sake to mend the net of a consistent walk. Another net often needs a serious mending, and that's the net of fervent prayer. You know, last night, I slipped into the prayer. You know, God, how many has been to the prayer room downstairs? Oh, I see maybe about two or three. They have a beautiful prayer room down there. If you don't go to pray, go take a look at it. My, it's one of the most beautiful prayer rooms. It's so, it's so nice looking down there. Well arranged. Beautiful prayer room. I slipped in there last night. I was 10 minutes. I think maybe your, your person will usually try to get there 30 minutes before uh, preaching time. That's where we do down south and other places, you know, to pray for the evening service. And I thought, my, I'm going to be 10 minutes late. I, I'll hardly have room to kneel there. But I had plenty of room because I was the only one there. Where are the people? You know what they're expecting, brother? They're expecting you to bring the revival and you to bring the revival and Dr. Taylor to bring the revival. I want to tell you this. I appreciate this good preaching my colleagues are doing, but it's going to take more than even good preaching. I don't care how good it is, how interesting it is to bring a revival to this hilltop. We're going to have to pray the thing through the thing it just won't get through. Fervent prayer. That net many times need a very, very... Serious mending. God tells us in his word, the fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. I don't think I do any harm when I give it this uh, uh, application. The fervent prayer of a righteous man persuadeth many into the kingdom of God. I do not believe God has placed within the hands, as it were, of the Christian a greater instrument for soul winning than prevailing prayer. After all, when you talk to men about God, they can turn their head, they can slam the door in your face. 
But thank God you've got a recourse. You can talk to God about men, and they can't keep you from doing it. Hey, man, God can get through that door. God can get into the bedchamber. God can get to where they work if they won't listen to you when you're talking to them about God. Talk to God about men. Fervent prayer, that net many times has great big holes in it. Now, don't look at me that way. If that were not true, that prayer room would have been filled last night. Wouldn't take over about 25 or 30 at the most to fill that prayer room. And I'm satisfied if there were not some people around here that's got big holes in the net of fervent prayer. That thing would have been filled to capacity. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I wonder what's going to take to bring a revival to America. You were telling me that you were just not too long ago uh, visiting Korea, revivals in Korea. You know, one of the things that thrilled me over there, I saw the people at the dawn prayer meeting. Not just uh, one church, but all the churches there. Not just doing revival meeting time, but every morning of the year. The bells would begin to ring between 4.30 and 5 o'clock, and folks begin to make their way down the pathway, down the road, and down to uh, the village way, to the little chapel. Where they go? They go into the chapel for prayer. 4.30 and 5 o'clock in the morning. And sit there on a cold floor without one bit of heat in the building. You know what brought... Uh, the dawn prayer meetings into existence, not prosperity, persecution. Awful, bloody persecution drove them to their knees. I wonder before God what it's going to take to wake up some in America. Prosperity hasn't done it. Something needs to happen to drive us to our knees if nothing else will put us on our knees. The net of fervent prayer. Wonderful things about this net. One thing, thank God, it can be cast from any place. It can be cast from the secret place of prayer, and I trust you have a secret place of prayer. It can be cast from the secret place of prayer. It can be cast from the family altar of prayer. It can be cast from the midweek prayer meeting, the cottage prayer meeting. It can be cast from your Sunday services, but it doesn't stop there. Thank God it can be cast from the bus, from the train, from the plane, from the shop, from the store, from the street, and even from the invalid's couch. Thank God this net of prayer can be cast. It can be cast a long ways, too. It can be cast to your next-door neighbor. Maybe some of you people have never even cast it to your next-door neighbor yet. Talk about witnessing. God help us. We're letting people slip through our fingers in the hell right under our nose. It can be cast across the street to your neighbor. It can be cast across the community. It can be cast across the state. It can be cast across the nation. But thank God this wonderful net of fervent prayer time and time again uh, by some good faithful saint of God has been cast again and again to the other side of the world. How many times you heard stories like this uh, coming out of the last war? There was a boy that uh, answered the call to go uh, to some foreign battlefield. He went there without God, without hope, as a sinful lad. But while he was over there on that old bloody battlefield, bombs are bursting and bullets are whining around, the groans of the dying around him. Something strange takes a hold of him. And he begins to pray, Oh, God, if you forgive me and save me, I'll live for you. The rest of whatever time I have, I'll live for you if you save me. Why? Because on the other side of the world here in America, there's a praying mom or a praying dad with their prayer bones pressing the floor and praying earnestly and fervently. And God reaches across there and gets that young man in. Yes, it's a wonderful, wonderful things about this net of prayer. But all oh, so many people, they've got great big holes in the net. You know what makes holes in the net? 
the lack of real healthy persistence in prayer. You know, the trouble with many of us, we just pray, and 10 minutes later, we forget, we forgot what we prayed about. There was no concern. There was no urgency of spirit. There was no burden. Just a half-hearted prayer for a few minutes, and then 15 minutes later, you forgot what you was even praying about or trying to pray about. No persistence. No holding on, if you please. I've met some people on the foreign fields that put some of us to everlasting shame. Haven't you seen them like that? Put us to shame. Why with their simple faith, childlike faith, but my such persistence some of them have. My first time to do missionary evangelism in Egypt, I believe it was 1970, been there about uh, seven times since then in different visits, but that time I held a revival meeting in a little chapel, kind of an improvised affair. In fact, is that's the way most of the churches start out. They don't have permission from the government to build a church. They'll rent a room and get permission to knock out a petition, make a little uh, chapel, and that's the way this one was, in L shape. The men, they divide women and men over there in the congregation. Men were sitting on the part of the, in the part in front of the pulpit, and the ladies in the other section uh, off to the right of the pulpit. I imagine that little chapel would seat comfortably about 75 people. Seating them comfortably. You know how many they have in there? 250, 300. Packed in there like sardines. Bible, the time the service started, the aisle was packed. There was no aisle there. They'd bring a chair, you know, another chair, until the aisle was all filled. And then uh, the little rostrum was about to 8 by 12 feet, uh, had a pulpit desk and five chairs and, a, and a, a piano. And I counted 25 young people and children sitting on the remaining part of that little rostrum. And uh, couldn't give an altar call because their knees were pressing, the people in front, their knees was pressing the rostrum. And I just had to have them bow their heads and pray right where they were. And when I uh, wanted to kneel to pray, I couldn't because they were sitting on my feet. They, we were that crowded. Well, the missionary said, Brother Barbie, if we could build a church that would seat 500, that fellow would have 1,000 packed in here. Oh, God, give us a revival like that in America. You know, the problem with America is to fill the pews. Look at the empty pews. You can see them everywhere. The problem overseas in most places where I have been in 13 different mission fields, 13 different countries, the problem is to have enough pews to accommodate the people that want to come. Well, we raised $18,000, that is Faith Mission did, to buy a lot in the city of Cairo. Takes a lot of money to buy a lot there, but one soul's worth more than that. Don't you think so? And they purchased the lot. I saw the lot. And then money was raised to build the church. And when they got enough money to start the building, the pastor, little fella, you think he's just one of these little timid fellas, but only weighs about 110 pounds, but I'll tell you, he's got a backbone like a saw log. You have to in that part of the world, a lot of other places. You serve God. And he went to the government office and made application for permission to build a Christian church, church of Christian faith in that Muslim stronghold. In the city where there's 1,000 mosques, temples where they worship the Mohammedan religion, turn their faces toward Mecca to pray to their dead God. So he made application, and here's what his friends told him. said, you're a fool. You're just a fool to think you're going to get permission to build a church here in Cairo. While one church said we've had our application on fire for 15 years and nothing yet's happened. But that wasn't Brother Saeed. Praise God, he was of a different stamp and brand. 
He went back to his people and said, Now I have made application. My application is on fire with the government to build the church. Now what we're to do is pray and fast. And they had nights of prayer and chains of prayer and fasting and prayer and days of prayer till a month went by and two months and six months went by. More praying, chains of prayer, fasting and prayer, nights of prayer, days of prayer until 10 months went by and 12 months went by still praying and fasting and holding on until they reached the 13th month. The 13th month, the telephone rang in Reverend Saeed's little apartment. He picked up the phone, and the voice on the other end of the line was from the government office, and the man said, Reverend Saeed, you can come by here and pick up your permit to build your church. Now listen, he said it's been signed and sealed by President Sadat of Egypt. Thank God for a modern miracle. Hallelujah. I'm so glad we're serving a God that answers prayer if people will get fervent in their prayer and pay the price for it. Man, I'll tell you, we just pray a little prayer. No, we've done our duty. We prayed, but we never did get earnest about it. We never did get desperate about it. I'll tell you, folks, we're not going to get anything from God these days in this world that's charged with hell power and satanic power and unbelief of all kinds. We're not going to get anything done unless we get through playing church and really get to the place where our prayers get fervent. You know, just as metal expands when it gets hot, so will your faith if it gets hot. And the way your faith gets hot where it can expand to make the contact is pray fervent prayers. God help us for Jesus' sake. Preacher, you're being mighty hard on this first time you're up. Well, we're getting acquainted to say the least. I'm serious about this. I'll tell you folks, I'm, I'm, I, don't, I don't have any time to play church. I don't have any time to play church in camp meetings. Any place. I want to see something heavenly, don't you? I want to see something, bless God, that's heavenly divine that'll defeat the devil and establish some souls and get some people ready for the rapture. Hallelujah. Fervent praying. Think about that precious mother down in Hampton, Virginia. She got up the last Sunday morning of the revival meeting there with a glory on her face and a burning testimony on her heart. My, how she praised God for answers to prayer. Don't you like to hear people testify to answers to prayer? Instead of getting up and grinding out a sad story, you know, until everybody just looks at them. They don't tell them, but they look at them and say, I wish you would sit down. But the pathetic thing is, some people like that, they don't seem to have sense enough to catch on. Folks don't want to hear it. Instead of that, she got up and said, oh, I thank God for answering my prayer. Oh, she was happy over it. And as soon as she sat down, the devil jumped on her. Well, that's just like that old fellow. The devil jumped on her and said, you are pretty something. You just got up here and told these people that God has answered your prayers, and you know good and well you prayed for 18 long years for your husband, and he's still unsaved. You know what that dear saint did? She jumped right back up and told on the devil. She jumped up and said, just as soon as I sat down, the devil jumped on me and told me that I'd been praying 18 years for my unsaved husband and he's still unsaved. And she said, but I'm trusting God for his salvation. That very Sunday afternoon, she heard some praying going on in the house. She tiptoed down the hall and looked in her bedroom and there was her husband kneeling beside the bed, climbing Jacob's ladder for everything it was worth. Hallelujah. 
And let me tell you, he climbed till he got to the top and God saved him. He came back to church that night and God got up and gave a testimony and God hit that place and revival came. Revival began the last night because that woman did not give up after 18 years of prayer. Say, if you prayed for loved ones, for God's sake, don't give up. If you prayed for unsafe companions, for God's sake, don't give up. Just hold on a little bit tighter. Get a tighter grip. Another net often needs a serious meaning, and that's the net of achieving faith. Now, I'm preaching to a congregation of believers. I know that. You believe in God. Not an infidel here. You wouldn't be here if you were an infidel. I was never an unbeliever, as far as a theoretical unbelief is concerned. From the longest, uh, far back as I can remember, I believed there was a God. Somebody taught me to pray. My mother died when I was 18 months old. My father died when I was seven years of age. I don't know. But somebody, when I was a child so far back, I can't remember, taught me to pray that prayer the children are taught to pray. I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my life to keep. And though I grew up to be it, go into deep sin as a shoplifter and as a bootlegger and as a hijacker of bootleggers and a thief and bound by tobacco and drink and gambling and everything in the catalog of sins until I reached the age of 20. But let me tell you, I never got away from the fact that I knew there was a God. I could be in a boxcar rambling over the West in a boxcar with 25 or 30 hobos in that boxcar. I didn't pray out loud, but I could not close my eyes for sleep until down in my heart I prayed that little prayer. I lay me down to sleep. I prayed the Lord my life to keep until thank God at the age of 20 old-fashioned hell scare conviction like an overwhelming black nightmare got a hold of me I made my way to that old-fashioned mourner's bitch blessed be God and bawled and squalled and prayed and confessed and cut shorelines and burned bridges behind me hallelujah and God for Christ's sake forgave me bless his name I took the step of saving faith Amen. That's been 46 years ago and better. Soon be 47 years ago, I took the step into saving faith. And for thank God for many years, I can say God has given me sanctifying faith that cleanses my heart. And for 46 years and better, I've had keeping faith. Hallelujah. I haven't had to backslide one time. Glory be to God. Hallelujah forever. There's one area of faith where I feel like hanging my head making my confession you can make yours later when it comes to achieving faith brother I'll be frank I'm not, a pr I'm not proud of my record of achieving faith what do you mean I mean that faith will just laugh at the impossibilities and get out there on the promises of God and say in spite of demons and devils and all the powers of unbelief thank God it shall be done achieving faith no sir not too many is right I know there's a lot of holes in the net of achieving faith in the lives of a lot of people. You know how I know it? So many people are busy making excuses. They say, well, I'll tell you, we're living in the last days, and I know we are. But they're leaning on that, you know. They're excusing themselves. We're living in the last days, you know, preaching. The falling away is here. The love of minutes wax cold, you know. And this is the day when people have itching ears and they won't endure sound doctrine. This is the day of materialism. This is the day of communism. I know all that is true. But blessed be God, in spite of materialism and communism and socialism and all the falling away and all the round of the corners and compromise, I believe saints of God with a real dynamic faith in God can get their feet on the promises. Hallelujah. And God still answers prayer. I'll tell you, actually, to tell you the truth about it, so many people have a very fuzzy idea of faith. 
Well, you can tell faith isn't real to them, to a lot of people. Like one person asked another, said, what do you believe? He looked embarrassed. Well, it wouldn't embarrass me for someone to ask me what I believe. I know what I believe, and I know in whom I have believed. That's better than on what you believe, in whom you have. Say, what do you believe? He looked embarrassed, and he kind of hesitated. And then finally, he blurted out, well, <clears throat> I believe what my pastor believes. Well, I wouldn't be saying much in some cases. He said, well, what is it your pastor believes? He looked embarrassed again. And he said, oh, well, after hesitation, well, uh, my pastor believes what my church believes. The fellow thought, I'll corner you, bud. He said, what is it that you and your church and your pastor believe? He really was on the spot. Then he looked embarrassed, and he said, well, I, I, oh, yes, we all three believe the same thing. <laughs> oh, that's getting nowhere fast, isn't it? Actually, it's pitiful. That's about the high nebulous some people's faith is. That's not real faith to them. Praise God, if you believe, I've got a right to know, to, to expect you to know what you believe. And if you don't know what you believe, I've got a right to doubt that you really believe. Real faith. Amen. And let me tell you, folks, a person's got holes in the net of faith when he's not persistent in his praying. I didn't say consistent. I said persistent. Just hold on and hold on and keep on holding on. I hold in my hand here a booklet. The title of this book is Seven Hours to Live. Any of you ever read it? Seven Hours to Live. I wish I had a thousand to this out of print. I, I asked the fellow to put it in the print, and he hasn't done it. I saw, if you could see, maybe it's too far for you, but a man is pictured here in a cell, the penitentiary of South Carolina. He's kneeling on an open Bible there in death cell. I saw that man's aunt and uncle electrocuted. I sat about six or seven feet in the electric chair and watched his aunt and uncle and the hired killer, all three of them, march in, strapped to the, in the chair, and Elias snuffed out with 2,300 volts of electricity. And uh, he was tried and sentenced to die for the same crime later. The reason he wasn't tried at the same time, he became a star witness against his own aunt and uncle. You see, when he was arrested and thrown behind the bars, he had had some kind of religious background, had attended some Baptist academy somewhere as a young man. He had some idea of how to get saved and what it would take. That man, soon after he got behind the bars, he got on his knees in that old dark cell, and he prayed through, clear through. Thank God, I'm so glad God could answer prayer in the prison, aren't you? He said, Lord, if you forgive me, make a new creature out of me, really save me. I'll tell the truth on myself and everybody else. That man, he'd be a witness against his own aunt and uncle. The whole brain's back of that awful crime of murder. This man was a policeman, the police force in the town that I now reside in, Spartanburg, South Carolina. It happened about 35 years ago. Well, he was tried. He was sentenced to die in the same chair that his aunt and uncle died in. And when they put him right there in death row, just a few days before he's to be executed now, they gave him one of these great big Bibles, kind of like a pulpit Bible, a big family Bible. Always they give him that on death row. The next one to be executed, let him have that Bible. He was reading, and he was genuinely saved. He felt like, I'm going to die, but God prepared me for it. And God filled him with the Spirit, and he became a mighty soul winner in prison. 
don't you tell me you out and you got plenty of opportunities and freedom and then you just simply waste your time and never get anybody saved and never try to win a soul and say you were saved. I doubt it seriously. Here's a man there in prison. Every opportunity he got, he won souls. He was reading the Bible and he felt strangely drawn to the book of John. Well, I like that too. <laughs> and he was reading in the book of John and he came across that seventh verse of the 15th chapter that said, if we abide in him and his words abide in us, we may ask what we will and it shall be done. He said, that's it, that's it. Why hadn't I seen that before? That's the reason I've been strangely drawn to the book of John. That means I, Frank Lowe. If I abide in him, and blessed be God, I do, and if his words abide in me, and he thought, what does that mean? I'm going to have to find out because I must qualify here. And that brother took it literally. He thought it meant he had to just memorize as much Scripture as he could, and he memorized so many verses of Scripture, he finally became known as the walking Bible. And after he just got a lot of Scriptures memorized, he called for a piece of chalk. The guard brought him a piece of chalk, and he went back there on the back of a cell and wrote the and with that piece of chalk wrote the words in great big letters. Uh, if I, if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you may ask what you will, and it shall be done. And made the announcement, I'm not going to die. You know what they did? They looked at him and said, "That poor mind's cracking up. He's losing his mind." Why, the execution hour is set. It's only a few days away, and the trial is over, and the sentence pronounced, and he makes the announcement, I'm not going to die. What makes you think you're not going to die, Frank? He said, God told me he was going to save me from the electric chair. He said to the defense attorney, I'm not going to die, sir. He said, now, Frank, now, Frank, now, now listen, Frank, don't, 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 don't get to built up in a false hope because, you know, the trial's over, and the sentence has been pronounced, and the day's already said, you may as well get set. He said, but God can't lie. My, if we had a faith like that today for revival. We don't believe God lies, but some of us act like we believe God lies the way we act. He said, God can't lie. Did you know, ever know of Red Kelly? Uh, maybe still in the Evangelist and Nazarene Church. He was the chaplain there. And he said to Red Kelly, said, uh, Chaplain Kelly, I'm not going to die. And Chaplain Kelly calls him, now, now, Frank, don't get... Uh, built up in a false hope. You know, the sentence's been pronounced. You may as well get prepared. He said, Chaplain, God can't lie. Well, about uh, Wednesday, about three days before the hour of execution, the defense attorney came and said, Now, Frank, I want to tell you, you just might as well get resigned. You are going to die. He said, I have tried to get in touch with the governor. He's the only one who had the power to commute the sentence, to change it, you know. And said, the governor, when they tell him who's wanting to talk to him, won't even come to the telephone so I can talk to him. The way is shut off. No hope. May as well get prepared to die. You know what he said? He said, God can't lie. This was three days before the hour of execution. Well, he retired for sleep on Wednesday night. Thursday morning, about 2 o'clock, he woke up wide awake, couldn't go back to sleep, and he couldn't have a light on because I turned out the light at a certain hour in penitentiary. And there was some moonlight, as this picture here shows, if you could see from there, a little moonlight streaming through the upper window there, making a patch of light on the floor of the cell. He had that Bible turned to that better verse, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you may ask what you will. And he laid it out in the moonlight. And it put one knee on one page and the other knee on the other and started a very interesting vigil of prayer that lasted for hours. The guard would pass the cell. That'd be Frank there in that patch of moonlight kneeling on the open Bible saying, Oh, God, it's your word. It's your word. It's your promise. Now, Lord, you're going to have to uh, make haste as it were and do something or you have gone against your word. 
My, that's waxing bold, isn't it? Tell God if it didn't do something pretty quick, he would have gone against his own word. Well, you know, the Bible says for us to command ye God. God tells us to command ye him. And that's what his faith was doing, commanding God. Well, he'd say to the guard, have you heard anything yet? He said, no, Frank, when I hear something, I'll let you know. All right, and went right back to praying. All day Wednesday, praying with his knees, pressing the open Bible. On the Thursday night, praying, oh, God, it's your word. You promised me that you were going to save me from the chair. At midnight, there was a loud knocking at the death house door, and the booming voice of the governor of South Carolina said, the warden, open up, it's your governor. The governor walked in, walked down the corridor till he stood before Frank Logue in his cell, death cell, said, Frank, I'm here to tell you, that's seven hours before he was to be executed, I'm here to tell you I'm going to commute this sentence to life. Frank, with a look of great praise and appreciation on his face, looked up and said, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. He said, open up and let Frank out in the yard get a little fresh air. He said, thank you, Governor. Said, and I want to get alone and thank God, first of all. After having a season of prayer there in the yard of the prison, he came back and said, Governor, I'm ready to preach to the inmates of this institution, this prison. Here's what the governor said. said, when you give your story to the newspapers, I want you to tell them, Frank, a high power did it. I couldn't sleep. The members of the pardon board couldn't sleep. Why? Because a born-again soul with his knees pressing the open Bible was saying, oh, God, it's your word. Let me tell you, folks, I believe with all my heart, if we'd get a hold of a promise of God like that for revival on this old hilltop, there's not a power in hell or out of hell that could stop us from having an old-fashioned heaven seen revival if we had taken it by the job like he did and persist in prayer. God help us for Jesus' sake. The men the net achieving faith. I shall go to the last one quickly. And this is something that's very important, very basic. And I'm afraid it's enough to put most of us here, all of us, under some measure of conviction. We need to mend the net of a real, genuine, warm love and compassion for a lost world. Now listen, folks, of the holiness belief. If we are short on any one thing more than others, it's this lack of real compassion for a lost world. It's a lot easier to get them told off than it is to weep over them. You hear me? You listening to me? It's a lot easier to just simply uh, unload on them and tell them exactly how you stand. And I'm not saying we're not to declare how we stand, but some people can do it with such, oh, such, so harshly. Easier to do that. A lot easier to do that than to weep over them with real compassion. If we're short on anything, my friends, we're short on this business, this thing you call real Holy Ghost compassion. Let me give you what the great soul winner Commissioner, Commissioner Bringle had to say along this line. And I believe if you know anything about the work of Commissioner Bringle, that man who went down the slums of London and dug out a church that finally circled the globe and preaching to people that most churches pass by as unsavable and untouchable. Here's what he had to say along that line. He said, if we do not care for the sinner, neither will he care. If we do not show a concern, neither will he have any concern. He says the sinner will measure the extent of their danger by our anxiety. 
And if we don't care, neither will they care. And then he adds this. The indifference of the professed Christian may doubt the, may cause a sinner to actually doubt the reality of hell. What does that do to you? I'll tell you, that grabs me. That gets a hold of me. How awful it would be to arrive before God on the day of final judgment. And how someone to say to me, Barbie, I'm going to be damned eternally in hell. Because I didn't see very much anxiety in your life. You said there was a hell, but you didn't show very much anxiety. You never did get onto a look. You never did show much concern. God to help every one of us. For Jesus' sake. Oh, how we need a revival of real Holy Ghost compassion today. Where did we get the idea that we're delivering our souls when we just simply tell people what we believe? What we are for and what we are against? That's part of it. But oh, my brother, my sister, if we're not careful, while we're letting them know we hate their sins, they'll get the idea we hate them as well. Did you know it? Like the little girl was playing in the filth yonder in the slums of New York City. There was a wealthy, sophisticated lady of great wealth on a tour through the slums there with a group. And they came to a place where this little girl was playing in the filth of the street. Oh, she was a sight to look at, besmeared with dirt from the crown of her head to the sole of her feet. And that woman became exasperated. Oh, my, look at that dirty child. I've never seen such a filthy, dirty child. Said, doesn't that child have a mother anywhere? Well, the tour director was acquainted with the people in the community and knew the family. The tour director looked at that lady and said, Lady, I happen to know that family, and I know that mother loves that child, but it happens she doesn't hate the dirt. And I can tell the way you talk, lady, you hate the dirt, but you don't have any love for that child. He said, Lady, until there is a hatred for the dirt and a love for the child gets in the same heart the child will keep right on being dirty. And I thought, oh, God, help us how much that is true concerning souls. There must be a hatred for their sin, but an equal amount of love and compassion for their souls, or they'll keep right on in their sins. When's the last time you had anything came to a heartbreak? When it felt like Almighty God or something was just almost squeezing the blood out of your literal, your very physical heart because of the burden so heavy and you have such a concern gripping your heart for a lost world? How long has it been since your cheeks were wet with tears because of a burden for some precious heart? You know what the Bible says? He that goeth forth and weeping bearing precious seed shall doubtless come again with rejoicing bringing his sheaves with him. Folks, I, I'm not standing up here saying, now, look at me, I'm an example. Oh, I'm preaching this to myself. There have been times when I was had a heartbreak and, and had that spirit of brokenness in the tip. But let me tell you, they're not as often as I want them to be. They're not as often as they ought to be. I want God to give me a revival of compassion in this care meeting. I want God to do the same for you. I had an experience in Korea that impressed upon me as never before the importance of tears. I'm not just natural a natural born weeper, you know, just weep all the time. I've seen some and I like it. But there are times when God breaks me all up. But I was in a meeting there on the hillside in Seoul, Korea a few years ago. And one night I opened the Bible to read, my interpreter standing next to me. And I started to read and I couldn't read. I started weeping and sobbing. Couldn't understand it at the time. Oh, I've had times when the burden was great and God would be on me and I'd just stop and weep. But there I was trying to read the scripture. I'd have to stop. 
I would get a hold of myself, and about the time I thought I was composed enough to start, I start again, and just a few words, I stop reading and start sobbing and weeping and just shaking and sobbing and weeping. And finally, in the midst of great sobbing and weeping, I said to the interpreter, I just can't preach, I can't preach. And I just sat down and just sobbed and wept until a man got up and happened to be the father of the pastor. And he said, and began to talk, and I looked at his wife. I looked through my tears at his wife. I happened to be staying in that home, and I was acquainted with him at that time. And I looked at his wife, and her, his, the wife had her head down like this. And as he was talking, she just shaking her head. Just as much as say, I wish you would shut up. You don't have a thing. And she kept a shaking her head. He kept a talking to her. Finally, he began to open up and confess. He began to confess that he had been living the life of a hypocrite. That he had been professing religion but slipping around using tobacco at the same time, smoking at the same time. And when she, he began to open up and confess his hypocrisy, the wife began to smile and the head began to come up. And she began to smile and do this way. She knew. She knew what he was. Just been an old hypocrite. I said that to tell you this. Here's what he testified before we left. He said, folks, it was the tears of the preacher I couldn't stand. Then I could see why God, he wanted that hypocrite somehow gotten out of that hypocrisy, and he let the burden be so heavy on my heart that I, couldn't, I could not read, I couldn't do it but just weep and sob. He said it was the tears of the preacher that got a hold of me that I couldn't stand against. Folks, we need a baptism of Holy Ghost compassion. You know, actually, we, most of us don't act like there's a literal burning hell, preachers. You know that? We say we believe there's a hell because the Bible says so, but we don't act like it. We don't preach like it. We don't pray like it. We don't witness like it. You tell me you were going down the street some night and about a half a block away you saw your home in flames and you had some precious children in that house in flames. Why, you think, well, you would, would you just continue your casual gate? No, a thousand times no. If you knew your house was ablaze, you would run with every ounce of strength you have. And when you got there, if you couldn't lay hands on the keys right away, you would dash the door in. Why? Because you know without any doubt the danger of fire. It's more than a theory. You know that fire is an awful destructive force, and if you don't get them out, they'll be destroyed. What would be the difference in this camp meeting if everybody got to the place where hell was that real? We began to snatch them as brands from the burning. I know one thing, the prayer rooms wouldn't be empty. We wouldn't spend all of our time chit-chatting and visiting and having a picnic time of it. We'd get under a burden that something had happened to us and we'd begin to pray some things to pass if we really believe the horrible reality of hell. We just don't act like it. We don't seem to recognize the real horrible reality of it. I'll give you this in closing. It happened years ago. It was in a Reader's Digest. There was an awful wreck on a busy thoroughfare. A man was trapped in the cab of a trailer truck. Being a busy thoroughfare, there was a crowd gathered hurriedly. And a wrecker was not very far away. They got a wrecker there and a truck there and several men and a crowbar, and they were trying to get the man out of this cab all in vain. Well, after they tried, they thought, well, we've tried. 
like some of us have tried. We invited them to church. We invited them to Sunday school and then forgot about them. Now I walked up into the midst of tall black man with a sober look on his face. Said, men, can I help you? They looked at him as if, they said, what do you think you can do? We had a record here and a truck and a crowbar and us men, and we tried and we didn't, we didn't accomplish anything. What do you think you can do? They didn't say it in words, but that's the way they looked at him. But when he went about and what he did, he acted like it almost rehearsed it before he came on the scene. As I remember the article, that man with the super strength, maybe the crowbar had gotten it loose a little bit, well, a little bit more to get it off, but he snatched and just snatched that door off of the truck and threw it aside. And there was fire leaping up in the floorboard of the truck. The man's feet was held fast between the brake pedal and the clutch pedal. And with his bare hands, he didn't have time to look for anything else. With his bare hands, he began to put out the fire, smothering out the fire that was leaping up through the floorboard. And then... When he got the fire smothered out temporarily with one hand on the brake pedal and one hand on the clutch pedal, he straightened those pieces of strong steel so the man could get his feet out. But he still couldn't get loose because he was held fast between the top of the cab and the steering wheel of the truck. Then the fire began to burn again, and it began to burn more furiously. He thought, I'll have to do something hurriedly, or this man will be destroyed with the flames. And then the article says, this tall black man made himself as small as he could. And it got right down to the cab, just as much in the cab as it could, right beside the man and squirmed and shoved until it was inside the cab. And then he began to push. People standing by said they could hear that steel as it gave way as that man shoved it off of the fellow. Kind hands pulled the injured man out. And while they were administering first aid, this black man walked away unthanked. After they got the man, ministered first aid to him, got him in the ambulance, rushing him to the hospital. They said, where's that black man? Where's that Negro? We just got to find out something. They finally found him, and his name was Jones. They said, Jones, please tell us, how could you do it? We tried with a crowbar and a truck and a wrecker, and we failed, and you come up single-handedly, and you did what the rest of us failed to do. His first answer is enough to put most of us on our faces in shame. He said, men... Nobody knows what he can do until he sees a fellow human being suffering. Oh, God help us. Can it be we're so blind we don't see? People all around us on the way to hell, are we without concern, without compassion, without burden? Said no man knows what he can do until he sees this fellow man hurting, suffering. And then they learned this story. The Christmas just before that, Joe's house caught fire. And he got his children out. And while he was busy seeing about something, he looked up just in time to see his little darling child, baby child, rush out of the crowd, back in the flaming house. He said, oh, my, there goes my baby. And he ran. But before he could get there, the house collapsed in a flaming ruin. Joan's child perished. From that time on, there was something about the sight of fire. Did something to that man. He realized that the danger of fire was more than a theory. That it was awfully destructive. And he knew if something wasn't done right away, that man would be destroyed by the same thing that took his girl. And it gave him a strength that he would have otherwise not have had. My Father, help us to get to the place in this camp meeting uh, to where we'll recognize the horrible reality of hell and say with the grace of God, if we've been playing church, we're going to quit playing church and we're going to ask our Heavenly Father to give us a revival of real tender compassion uh, to where there'll be some groans and some tears uh, and a burden for the lost world uh, before they'll drop into hell and we'll be held responsible. How many of you folks this afternoon, honest of heart, and remember, God can't do anything with it for any of us Unless we'll be honest. 
Brother Barbie, I must admit that at least there are some broken strands that will soon be holes in some of these nets. Haven't been at my best. I haven't been what God wanted me to be. I haven't been effective. I've been carrying on, but I haven't been getting the job done. My nets need repairing. I need my net of fervent prayer repaired. I haven't carried the burden in prayer like God would be pleased for me to carry. I haven't had the help from God in my faith, achieving faith that I ought to have. I want my nets repaired. And of all things, oh God, I need compassion. I need a visitation of real heartbreaking compassion. Would you be honest enough to get up where you're sitting and come down here and bow for a great season of prayer? Thank you for listening to Convention Pulpit, a ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention, featuring Wesleyan voices past and present. For more sermons or for more information, visit www.ihconvention.com. This ministry is made possible through the financial support of our listeners. You may give online at ihconvention.com or send your donation to IHC, Post Office Box 99, New Berlin, Pennsylvania, 17855 USA. I